Good morning. Man, it's so good to see you guys here. It's uh, as we celebrate our resurrected Savior. It's Resurrection Sunday. And, and um, so it was hard to narrow down what we were going to talk about today. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to talk about Jesus and the resurrection. But um, anyways, uh, but it, our, our kind of theme is rescue, right? And uh, everybody likes a good rescue story. Uh, you think about movies, I was thinking about the movies that I like this, this week and, and kind of rescue stories. And some of that came to mind that were like Private Ryan, that's a pretty good rescue story, right? Got a guy behind enemy lines, his brothers have died in war, and, and, and this is the last kid. And, and so they risk and many die in order just to save him and rescue him so that he doesn't also die. I thought that was a, a pretty good rescue story. There's lots of other rescue stories. You know, I think Apollo 13 is kind of a rescue story. I mean, they kind of saved themselves, sort of, but with help. You know, they had help from the, from the crew on the ground and trying to figure stuff out. And it was, it was kind of this great rescue story. And, and, uh, and Captain Phillips. Yeah, how many have seen Captain Phillips, right? That's a great rescue story. I love that one. It's, you know, modern-day pirates take over a ship, and, you know, Navy SEALs and the Navy kind of come in to save the day and, and free them. That, that's a really good one. I, I put the perfect storm in here, but upon reflection, I don't know if that was really a rescue story because I, I think they all died, didn't they? I think it's, all right, never mind. Perfect, forget perfect storm. That wasn't one of them, right? Um, but then another one, another one that, that obviously, and it's, it's one that is a, a memory that probably many of us or most of us have is, is you know, is uh, uh, the World Trade Center and, you know, that they made a movie, of course, 9-11, and of course many died, but many were rescued because of the courage uh, of our first responders and running into the, into the building instead of out of the building to save people and things like that. And, you know, it's, it's hard to pick a favorite. Maybe there's, there's several movies I, I'm, I'm thinking about and, you know, that, that, represent a good rescue story. And, and I was only thinking about real ones, by the way, so like Avengers doesn't count, all right? It's not, you know, I, I, I know that Chris Hemsworth like plays a small G God on the big screen, but he isn't in real life. He can't do anything, all right? You know, so those don't count. But there's some good rescue stories out there. And as I was thinking about it, there's three things that a good rescue story needs, right? There's three, there's three things that a good rescue story needs. The first one is it needs somebody who's in need of rescue, right? I mean, that's the obvious one. Somebody has to be in need of rescue. The second thing is, is if it's going to be a great rescue story, it needs impossible odds. It has to have impossible odds. And the third one is it can't just be any hero. It can't be the expected hero. It's got to be the unlikely hero, the one you, you don't expect. And, and they come through and they, they overcome the, the, the impossible odds and save the day. Those, those are kind of the three things of a great rescue story. But here's the thing. As we think about all of this, and we can look at, at, at great movies and, and great stories and great rescue stories. But the greatest rescue story ever told is the one that we tell today. It's the greatest rescue story ever told. And it has all three of those elements. And, and the Apostle Paul describes this in Romans chapter 5, where we're going to be spending our time. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 5. If you don't, and you have a smartphone, you can download an app called YouVersion, Y-O-U version, all spelled out, and you can follow along that way. And it, otherwise, we'll put the, the scripture on the screen for you this morning. But we're going to be, start in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6, and it says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his, his own love for us in this. Will we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been 
justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In a really compact way, Paul describes the story of Scripture, the rescue story that we find in Scripture. And, and as I said, it, the, a great rescue story starts with, with somebody being in need of rescue. And I have to tell you, as Scripture presents itself, as it unfolds all the way back in, in Genesis, the first thing it presents to us is this, that we are in desperate need of rescue. We are in desperate need of rescue. You and I are in need of rescue. I know, here's the thing, in our society, we like to, we like to think, we're, oh, I don't really need to be rescued. You know, we like to be in control of our circumstances, in control of our surroundings. We like to be strong. We like to be, you know, empowered. And we talk a lot, a lot about being empowered. That's, a, that's an, a language we use a lot. And it's kind of this idea that, that you can be empowered so that you're never the victim, right? That you can be in control of everything around you. And, and we kind of pride ourselves with that. I think even especially as Americans, we kind of have that mentality where I got to be the one who is the one that overcomes. I got to be the strong one. I got to be the one who is an individual, right? I don't need anybody to help me. And we, we have this built in, this ingrained thing in our lives where, where we think that we have to go through life and we got to stand up and we go, nobody helps me. Can I just tell you something? You need to be rescued. If from nothing else, from that very attitude. The reality is this, that you need to be rescued and so do I. We are in desperate need of rescue. You go back to the beginning of Genesis and you see God and he creates everything, right? He creates the universe and he creates this garden and he, and he puts humanity in the midst of it, Adam and Eve in the midst of it. And he's given them everything they need to flourish and to have this, this great life and, and to live in relationship with God because what God wants more than anything is a relationship with his creation. He wants to love them, and he wants, he wants us, his creation, to love him in return. More than anything, that's what God desperately wants. That's what he created. That's why he put humanity in the garden. But he also put something else in the garden. Because in order to have a loving relationship with us, we had to have the choice to not be in a loving relationship with him. And so he puts a fruit tree in the middle of the garden, and there's nothing magic about the fruit. You know, this isn't a a Disney story. It's not a poisoned apple or something like that. It's just fruit on a tree. And God says, you can have anything you want in the garden. Everything Everything you see here, it's yours. You have everything you need to flourish. You have everything you need to live in loving relationship with me. And I put this here, and I'm telling you, you cannot eat of it. Don't eat of it. Because as soon as you do, you will, you will know good and evil. It's called the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? And there's this idea that they know good, but if they take the fruit, they will then know evil. 
and evil will enter into the world. And God says you will surely die. And you know the story. You know how it goes. You know, Adam and Eve do eat the fruit. And from chapter 3 of Genesis to chapter 4, you see death enter the world immediately. You see sin enter the world immediately. You see mistreatment of others enter the world immediately. And from that very time, moving forward, sin has infected the human race. It doesn't take a lot of thought. It doesn't take a lot of time to look at the world we live in and to realize and to recognize that something's broken. Something isn't right. Even the news that, that came out of Sri Lanka this morning, out of, out of ring, that rings true to us, right? We hear that news and we go, something is broken in this world. There is evil, there is wickedness, there is sin. It has entered the world and it has infected the human heart. And it hasn't just infected their heart. It's infected your heart, and it's infected my heart. I mean, the reality is this. If you came in here this morning, and, you know, it's Easter, and maybe you, you haven't been to church in a while, and you walked in this morning, you go, I don't really need church, but I'm going to go for my family or whatever the case might be. I'm just kind of here for somebody else because they wanted me to go. And you, can, and you walked in, and you're thinking, I, I don't really, I'm a good person. Like, I've never really sinned. I've never done anything wrong. I've never mouthed off to my mom. I've never lied to anybody. You know, I've never treated anybody poorly. Honestly, if you can get through all of those statements with a straight face, it's pretty impressive. That, that's a whole new level of denial, right? Because the reality is this, that I've done all those things. I've sinned. I, I, need, I need rescuing, and you need rescuing. If you walked in this morning and you don't think you need rescuing, then I don't have a message for you. Like, I got nothing for you. I really don't. But if you walked in this morning, and even in this moment, if you now recognize and realize that there's something broken in this world, that in fact, there's something broken in me, and there's something broken in you, and that you do need rescuing, then I got a message for you. And I know some of you look at me and go, well, John, I know that you need rescue. That's plainly obvious. I mean, there's no doubt. I don't need rescue. Okay, well, maybe you're a little bit better than me. But the truth of reality is this, that sin has entered the world that you've thought bad thoughts, you've done bad things. And it doesn't take but a moment of reflection if you've been alive for very long to recognize that, does it? We like to downplay our own sins. We like to look at the sins of others. We kind of look out at the world. We watch the news and we go, wow, there's some really bad and wicked people out there, but not me. In other words, I hate those sins. I hate the sins that those people commit, but, but my sins are kind of okay. I justify my own sins. And we do that a lot, don't we? We kind of go, oh, well, I don't, I don't sin that bad, right? The stuff I do isn't that bad. We kind of put ourselves in this kind of moral equivalency, right? Like we just kind of go, well, there's other people that do worse things than me. Can I just tell you the truth? They're looking at you and saying the same thing. <laughs> they just are. They're just looking at you and going, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as that lady. I'm not as bad as that girl. No way. You know, the, the whole thing is this. We always justify our own sins, our own righteousness. We like, to, we like to think that we're better than everybody else. But the reality is this, that you go all the way back to the beginning, and since the very moment sin entered the world, we've been trying to undo it. I mean, think about it. Why, why do you think we have counselors and therapists and those, those kinds of things? I mean, what, what, how effective they are or not is really isn't the point. We've been trying to undo this sin thing since it entered the world in the first place. 
I mean, the whole idea that we need counselors and therapists and those kinds of things, that, that demands that there's something broken in this world, that, that something needs to be fixed, that there's a rescue that needs to happen. And we've looked to all kinds of different places. We've looked to reason and logic, right? We've, we've said, hey, if we, could just, if we could just be smart enough as humanity, we could kind of dig our way out of this. And as, as I was telling somebody this morning, you know, kind of digging your way out of something doesn't work. I don't know if you realize this, but digging always goes down. You ever thought about that? Here's a shovel. Dig yourself out of it. Down? That doesn't work. Shovels are made for digging down. It just gets us in deeper trouble. We think we can overcome, but the reality is that we cannot. Adam and Eve needed to be rescued, and we all need to be rescued. And Paul reminds us of that in Romans chapter 3, right, where he says, There is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who seeks God. And he goes on. And it lists all these things. And, and, and if you, as you read through that, we see ourselves in that, in, that, in that category. There is no one righteous. And if you go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says something about sin and God's attitude towards it that's really important for us this morning. It says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the god- godlessness and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. You know, why do you have to pull that scripture out, John? Well, because it's scripture, and because God said it, and because it's important for us to understand that God hates sin. I want to say that again, because it's not, not, a, not a message we like to talk about, right? Like, we, we'd rather talk about God as love, and we're going to. Just give me a minute, okay? I'll get there. But we got to start here first. God hates sin. He's angry at sin. As a matter of fact, the reality is that we're, we're all angry at sin. You're angry at sin too. All I got to do is list the right sin. And if I list the right sin, you'll, oh, I hate that one. And, and rightly so, right? We talk about oppressing people who, who have no power. Well, that ought to make us angry. It's a righteous anger. We talk about assaulting people violently. Well, that ought to make us angry. We talk about people who take advantage of people. Maybe, maybe to make it really significant, people who take advantage of little kids and, and, and harm them and hurt them in, in some particular way. Well, yeah, that makes me angry. Why? Because it's wrong. We hate sin. I just got to list the right one. Whichever one's touched your life, if I, if I say the right one, I'll say, oh, I hate that sin. It's true, isn't it? We all hate sin. As a matter of fact, we don't understand why other people don't hate that sin. Most of the time, somebody else maybe kind of, they're, they're kind of like, well, I can kind of live with that sin. We go, well, you can? We get angry. Because it's not right. Because there's a sense of holiness, a sense of righteousness that's built into us. And we know that there are things that are wrong in this world, and we hate them. And God hates them. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. We like to explain away the idea of God's wrath, but that's a mistake. It's a mistake. D.A. Carson talks about this, and and he talks about the nature of God, and he says this. He says, wrath, unlike love, is not, listen to me, is not one of the intrinsic perfections of God. Rather, it is a function of God's holiness against sin. Where there is no sin, there is no wrath. 
But there will always be love in God. The price of diluting God's wrath is diminishing God's holiness. Let me see if I can explain that a little bit more. See, the scriptures say that God is love, but nowhere does it say God is wrath or God is hate or God is any of those things. Those things are not part and parcel of who God is. They are not his essence. God is not, in essence, hateful. He is not, in essence, angry. He is not those things. Those things are a result of sin because they challenge his righteousness and his holiness. But God absolutely 100% is, in his essence, is intrinsically love. God is love. But here's what we've done. We've come along and we've seen, we've seen this idea of wrath and we've seen this idea of love. And we go, we go these two things conflict with each other. We've kind of created this idea that they conflict, but they don't. I think I can illustrate this. As a matter of fact... I think, I think we illustrate it to ourselves if we're parents all the time. I, I just, you know, from a parental perspective, I absolutely, 100%, without a doubt, love my kids. I got to be careful. They're both sitting here this morning. But, right, I absolutely, 100%, I love my kids. I will do anything for them. I will give up my life for them. I will sacrifice for them. I will do anything from them, for them, Right? Parents, you understand this? Amen? Say amen. If you're a parent, you understand this? You understand this, right? Amen? Yeah, we, we love our kids, but there are moments. You know what I'm talking about, right? There are moments. You just want to grab them, right, and kind of shake them a little bit, you know? Like, you get angry with them. But here's the thing, in that moment, you're angry with them. Why? Maybe they've done something wrong. By the way, I'm not judging kids, by the way, because we all have been the kid in this situation. If we're an adult, we've been that kid. So it doesn't matter. We all kind of fit in this category. But there's that moment, right? They, they mouth off. They, they, they're, they're disobedient. They do something wrong. They don't check in and call when they're supposed to. They stay out past curfew. They, they break some rule. They treat somebody else poorly. They let the door slam in that old lady's face as we walked out of the restaurant. Not towards the old lady, towards the kid, just so we're clear. Right? Like there's that moment because we see in them that sin and that evil, and whether, whether, it's, whether it's intentional or unintentional, we see it and anger comes out because we're mad because of what sin has done and the fact that they've committed that sin and we get angry. But do we cease to love them in that moment? Absolutely not. 100% we don't. Even in that moment, even in that moment when my kid has done something, that is wrong, that is sinful, that is evil, that is wicked, even in that moment where I am angry, righteously angry, because I'm never unrighteously angry, righteously angry, right? I'm righteously angry. I still love them with everything in my being. See, the reality is this, that God can 100% at all times without a doubt because it is his essence. It is part and parcel of who he is. He is love. First John says God is love. He can love us every moment of our lives, even in that moment when we are sinning against him. And he is angry about our sin. Even in that moment, he loves us. You see, wrath and hatred of sin... And love can coexist. But where there is no sin, as D.A. Carson pointed out, there's no wrath. 
There's no anger here. God is not an angry God. It is not who he is. He is a loving God. But if we take away the wrath, we take away his holiness because it is holiness that produces the anger towards that which is unholy. D.A. Carson kind of goes on later and he, and he says this. He says, God's love wells up amidst his perfections and is not generated by the loveliness of the loved. In other words, I don't love my kids all the time because they're lovely. Sometimes they are anything but lovely, but I still love them. In other words, they are not producing that in me. I love them in spite of whether they are lovely or not. God loves you in spite of whether you are lovely or not. You don't come to God and say, God, look how lovely I am. And he goes, oh, okay, I guess I'll love you. That's not how that works. God goes, I love you regardless of whether you're lovely. Even when you're anything but lovely, I still love you. That's, it's not generated, God's love towards us is not generated by us. It's generated by the essence of his being and who he is. And he expresses that towards us. No matter what we've done, no matter what we've thought, no matter where we've come from. You know, I look at this text and I want to look at it again. We'll put it, I, think, I think we have it up on the screen for you. But I want to read it, and we highlighted some words, so I'm going to read it again to you. And it says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still what? Powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. Right? Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person some might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still what? Sinners. Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if well we were God's what? Enemies. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in, God's, in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In other words, God describes us in four very specific ways. The first way is this. He describes us as being powerless or weak, depending on the translation you look at. Powerless or weak. As a matter of fact, the asthenes, the the Greek word, can kind of mean sick. It can mean ill, right? We've been infected by sin. It has this idea that, that we've been infected, and because we are infected, we are weak and we are powerless. In other words, you cannot save yourself. We lack the strength and the power to save ourselves. The second way he describes us is this. We are ungodly. We lack character and holiness. That is why we need to be saved. The third way he describes us is is this. We are sinners. We have all fallen short of God's glory, Romans 3.23. We are enemies of God. Sin is the antithesis of holiness, and therefore we are God's enemies when we are ruled by sin. These are the four ways that we are described in this text. We are powerless and we are weak. We are ungodly. We are sinners. And we are enemies of God. I think we need rescue. How about you? We need rescue. We are in desperate need of rescue from from sin and God's wrath. But the story gets better because our rescue is impossible. Almost. 
A rescue is impossible almost. And by this, I mean we can't save ourselves. You can't save me. I can't save you. Chris Hemsworth isn't going to come save us because he's just a small G God on a big screen that doesn't really do anything. He can't really have the, He doesn't have a magic hammer or anything like that. There's, right? There's, there's no salvation from him. There's no salvation from you. There's no salvation from me. There's no salvation from your favorite political leader. They're not going to save you either. There's no salvation from any of the people on this planet. It's almost impossible because salvation requires something very specific. Science isn't going to save us. Technological discovery and, and, and innovation isn't going to save us. I mean, I don't know if you realize this. Like, I, I get scared. Anybody else scared of self-driving cars? You know, is this, okay, I'm not crazy. I knew it. I knew it. I'm scared of self-driving cars. You know why? Because I saw iRobot. <laughs> and I saw Terminator. And I saw the Matrix too, right? Like, I, I know what happens with the machines. I'm just, I'm, I'm telling you, man. Go John Connor, I'm just saying. All right? Technology might make our life easier, right? It might even save us temporarily from a heart attack. It might save us temporarily from, from some disease, it might save us temporarily from something. It might Im- improve our sight, you know, LASIK or contacts or eyeglasses, whatever. It might improve our hearing, you know, maybe cochlear implants or something like that, right? There's, there's things about technology. It can, it can help us in a lot of ways. But can I just tell you, so far, everybody dies. Everybody. Save a couple. I was just telling Suzanne the other day, I'm like, those Enoch and Elisha, they always mess it up for me. Because I go, everybody dies. And then, well, okay, not those two. But everybody else dies. If you don't know who they are, look them up in the Bible. They don't die. Right? Everybody dies. Technology will not save you. Science will not save you. God is a God of justice, and that means he requires payment for sin. Romans 6.23 tells us, the first half of that verse tells us, for the wages of sin is death. And here's the problem. A sufficient payment for our sin requires three things. A pure sacrifice without blemish. Someone holy for someone who is unholy. And it also requires an eternal being because the punishment is eternal, as is the gift of eternal life. Last I checked, we all fail in those categories. So we can't save ourselves. But there is one who can. There is one who can. Because Jesus is the unlikely rescuer. Jesus is the unlikely rescuer. Right? If you're here today, there's a decent chance you know the story. You know the Easter story. You know how this goes, right? You know Jesus, you know the eternal divine son of God. He takes on human flesh. He comes to earth, right? You know that story. He lives, he lives on the earth for about 30 years and starts his ministry. Lives for about another three years. Spends time with the disciples. He heals the blind. He makes them see again. He makes the deaf hear again. He makes the sick healthy. He walks on water. He commands the storms. He does miraculous things. He raises Lazarus from the death. I think that makes up for Enoch, right? Because Lazarus had to die twice. I'm just saying. But anyways, you know, like he does all these miraculous and wonderful things, right? Jesus is this, this unlikely savior because he came out of Bethlehem and he, came, he was born in Bethlehem. He came out of Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. The scripture tells us that. What good can come out of Nazareth? 
He, he's not royalty. I know he comes from the line of David. A lot of people came from the line of David, but his dad was a carpenter. He was a carpenter. He was nobody, or at least he was supposed to be based on where he came from. He was the unlikely rescuer, but he rescues. Because not only did he live a sinless life, the divine, eternal Son of God who took on flesh, which really isn't that hard to believe. If you believe that God could create the universe, why can he not enter the universe? It's, it, it, it makes sense. If he really loved that which he created, does it also, doesn't it also make sense that he would enter that which he created so that he could know and love his creation and be loved by his creation? It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And so he goes to the cross and he, and he dies a painful death. And his blood is shed, innocent blood. He becomes the sacrifice, the unlikely hero. He becomes the one who provides the way to eternal life. He becomes the one who gives us his righteousness because of the blood he shed. Not that we've earned righteousness. We receive righteousness from Jesus so that when we stand before God, we stand before him holy. We stand before him pure. We stand before him righteous, not because we've earned it, but because Jesus gave it and we put our faith and trust in him. Let's look at that text again that Paul has, and we'll point out some other things in that text. In Romans chapter 5, starting verse 6, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, what? Christ died for the ungodly. So yes, we're powerless. Yes, we're ungodly. But God died for us in that state. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person some might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love in this while we are still sinners, what? Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, before we got our life straightened out. Still straightening out my life. Since we have now been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? We've been saved from that. That was expressed on Jesus. He paid the price. He satisfied God's wrath. For if we were, if we were God's enemies, what does it say? We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. We've been reconciled to God. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Did you notice it didn't say through his death? It said what? Through his what? Life. We're saved through his life. Not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received what? reconciliation. And then if you turn the page to Romans 6, chapter 4, it says this, we were therefore buried with him. This is what we did with baptism. It was a symbol of what happens in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, that was coming out of the water, raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may too live a new life. You see, God is not the God of death. He is the God of life. And he is not the God of wrath. He is the God of love. And it comes through in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he just died and stayed dead like everybody else, we wouldn't be talking about him this morning. It doesn't matter. We serve a risen Savior. We serve a God that is alive. Because we serve the God of life. Amen? I'm getting excited. Because here's the reality. Jesus died for the ungodly. That's you and me. Jesus died for sinners. That's you and me. Jesus saved us from God's wrath. That's you and me. Jesus reconciled the enemies of God. We were once enemies, and if we put our faith in Christ, we are no longer enemies through his death. Jesus reconciled not only through his death, but through his what? His life. Jesus gave us new life. 
through the resurrection. We serve a risen Savior. Well, we got to talk about the Easter story some. So Matthew chapter 28, it says this. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the mother Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid that they shook and became like dead men. They fainted. That's what that sounds like to me. The angel said to, said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who is crucified. Listen to this. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lies. He is a risen Savior. Amen? I don't want to serve a dead God. That's, who does that? That makes no sense. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship something that's dead? That's dumb. Don't do that. Okay? We serve a risen Savior. We serve the God of life. He overcame sin and death. He didn't stay dead because he is the God of life. He is the God of resurrection. He is the God of eternal healing. He is the God of love. He is the God of justice. He is the God of holiness. As a matter of fact, 2 Corinthians verses, verse 4, 16 says this, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light, listen to this, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what is, not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In other words, I know you come here this morning and your life isn't perfect. And you've got struggles, and you've got hurts, and you've got sorrows, and you've got trouble in life. You've got financial issues. You've got relationship issues. You've got issues with your kids. You've got issues with your parents. You've got issues with your brothers and sisters. You've got employment issues. You've got, you got stuff. You've got medical issues. You've got physical issues. Whatever it is, you have all this stuff. I know you come here hurting because we live in a fallen world. But here's what also what I know. All the affliction of this world pales in comparison to the glory that we will experience when we are with God for eternity. It pales in comparison, amen? So the question is this. Do you want to serve a risen Savior? Do you want to serve a risen Savior? I'm so thankful, by the way, for Thomas because he doubted, and I'm kind of like Thomas. I, I love the fact that he said, I'm not going to believe till I put my fingers in his wounds. And then Jesus appeared to him and he went, okay, I believe. <laughs> I'm so thankful for the disciples in Romans chapter 20, or in Matthew chapter 28. When they, it says they took his feet. They took his feet. They touched the risen Savior. I'm so thankful for that, that Paul recorded that over 500 people saw Jesus risen and alive at one time. Can I just tell you, it would be a greater miracle for all of them to have the same hallucination at the same time and have all the same details in that hallucination than it would be for Jesus to rise from the dead. It doesn't happen. We have witnesses, firsthand eyewitnesses. We don't serve, we don't, we don't worship a fairy tale. We don't worship a God who's not there. We worship a risen Savior, and we have firsthand evidence that this actually happened, that God is actually working out his plan in redemptive history, and we're part of it. 
That's why I put my faith in Jesus Christ and the blood he shed because I need to be rescued and he's my rescuer. Amen? Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you so much.